Have you ever been tempted to give up or check out in your walk with God? Have you been at a place in life's journey where you felt overwhelmed and overshadowed by life's obstacles, setbacks, or heartaches? It could be you are at such a place right now, a place where you are hungering for hope. If so, then Hope Along the Journey podcast is a ministry of encouragement created specifically with you and others just like you in mind. And now, here is your host, Mark Cravens, to share a word of encouragement with you today. Hello, my friends, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of Hope Along the Journey. Hi, I'm Mark Cravens, and I'm your host, and I appreciate you taking these next few minutes to listen to what I believe is going to be an exciting and informative podcast that's going to focus on the Father image of God. Just this past Sunday was Father's Day, and Dr. Michael Avery, who was formerly president of God's Bible School in college, he's been a pastor, he's a father and a grandfather. He's also uh, does a ministry called Deeper Life Ministries that goes around and preaches and holds seminars. And he was a guest speaker here at our church, and he shared a powerful message on how we as fathers shape the image of God to our children. It's a great message, and in just a few moments, we're going to listen to that audio from the Sunday morning message at New Life Community Church, where I pastor. Before we do that, I just want to thank all of you again for your partnership in the ministry, your prayers, your emails, your financial support. Thank you so much for all you do to keep Hope Along the Journey ministering to not only here in the United States, but to several people in other countries who are receiving benefit from this ministry. Take a few moments, if you would, to visit our website at hopealongtheministry.org. Again, that's just Hope Along the Journey, rather not Hope Along the Ministry, hopealongthejourney.org, or go and connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. We'd love to connect with you. Sign up for our email newsletter that we send out about every couple of months. We'd love to have you on our newsletter team. And now, here you go. We're going to share with you a message that I think is going to be so insightful for you, talking about how we as fathers shape the image of God in the lives of our children. Thank you. Good morning. That bad, huh? It's wonderful to be a Christian, isn't it? It's wonderful to be a Christian father, isn't it? Now, you seem a little lackluster about that. I hope, it's, I hope the passion's in the, at least the first part, whether it's in the last part or not. If you're a father this morning and you're raising little ones and teenagers, you have my sympathies. I've been through all of that, and, and uh, I can look back on it and say I did an absolutely perfect job. So, <laughs> Mark asked me to, he listened to a, uh, I don't know if it was online or something that I, uh, I was in Grace Bible Church in Idaho, and he heard me give some of this, and he said, would you share that on Father's Day? And so what I'm actually doing is I'm pulling something out of the uh, Deeper Life emphasis, tying it or actually expanding uh, a component of that 
And so you're going to have to listen a little bit. It's going to be sort of like a long introduction. And some of you are going to wonder, I thought this was a Father's Day sermon. Where in the world is he going and what is he talking about? But just, just hang in there with me. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, verse 9. I'm going to talk about dad in the mirror or reflecting God's image. Reflecting God's image as fathers. You ready? There was a little boy that was visiting with his grandpa one weekend. And he was in the living room with a large piece of paper and crayons, and he was drawing furiously on the floor a picture. His grandfather walked in and looked down, and he said, son, what are, what are you drawing? He said, why, Papa, I'm drawing a picture of God. To which his grandfather looked at him very puzzled. He said, I didn't know anybody knew what he looked like. To which the little boy responded, they will when I'm done drawing him. Do you know that all of us have a picture of God in our head? It's the narrative. It's the, it's, the, it's the default of our spiritual hard drive. Everything about us rises and falls around this picture we have of God. Some of you see him as this perpetual Santa Claus who just pours out goodness. Others see him as a tyrant or a, a very highly critical judge that looks over their shoulder and judges everything they do. Others see him in the sense of royalty, maybe a king on the throne, but everybody has a picture of God. I was thinking about this many years ago in my D group that you see there. And they met in my home. I had a D group for many, many years. And they would meet in our, our living room and we would talk about life and so forth. And one, one evening, one winter evening, the fire was burning and we were sitting around in, in that living room. And I had just finished reading The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith. And so I pulled a little illustration out of the book and I turned. And if you look in the very center on the first row, there's Marika Hare. And she was sitting immediately to my right. And I turned and I said to my group, I said, if God chose to reincarnate himself and walk through the front door, turn and come through this archway, and he turned and looked directly at you first, Marika, what would be the expression on his face? What would his face say to you? This is a five-star student, straight A, top-of-the-line kid. Her countenance clouds up. She drops her head, and under her brows, she looks at me, and she said, she said, I'm afraid he'd be saying, you can do better. You can do better. And all around the room, that same, some version of that story came out. That group that was sitting under me had a picture of God who was rule-oriented, shame-based, performance-driven. And they could hardly get their head up when they thought about God. We all have this picture of God in our head. Dallas Willard said it like this. He said, the single most important thing in our mind is our idea of God and all of its associated images. It's true. The mystic Tozer 
said it a little different, but in the same way. He said, whatever comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. William Templeton said it like this. If your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you become to yourself and to everybody else around you. And it's true. Visiting Willard again, he added something. He said, to serve God well, we must think straight about him. And crooked thinking, unintentional or not, always favors evil. And he's right. So, what does your picture of God look like? You've all got one. What does it look like? I'm sorry, this thing's jumping around on me. When I pastored years ago, I was still a, a senior at God's Bible School. And on the north side of town, northwest side of town, there's a little church, used to be a little church called Mount Airy Friends. And I was pastoring my little flock of friends, those warm-hearted Quakers. And one Sunday morning, just as a preacher kid, I was trying to encourage that little handful of folks. And I preached a little message on heaven or something. I can't quite remember. But anyway, I was trying to lift them up. And so as a good young preacher boy would do, I went to the back door, stood there with my best suit on, my Bible under my left arm, my right hand out, ready to shake hands. And here comes Brother Myers. Now, Brother Myers had been in my congregation for a while. And if you know anything, if you, if you had you known him, no one here would know him. But if you had known him, this man had read every, he'd read his Bible through so many times. I couldn't tell you how many times he'd worn the thing out. He had read every Wesleyan theology there was. He knew every holiness classic there was. But when he came to me at the back door, and there I was standing, smiling, I reached out my hand to him and I said, Oh, Brother Myers, isn't God good? He took my hand. Here's exactly what he said. He said, Oh, will any of us ever make it? Paul Myers loved God with all of his heart, but he didn't like the God he had in his head one little bit. Now, hold that one. When I was 14, I started working at Meg's Rexall Drug Store, Centerville, Alabama. My boss was a redheaded divorcee who was, the only way to describe her is mean. I mean, mean. She was a chain smoker. She drank all the time. She was a serious alcoholic. We had a soda fountain in the store and she would keep a glass about half full of uh, Coke and the rest of it with Jack Daniels or wild turkey or something. But she just drank all the time. She could curse as, as in the most awful way of any woman I ever met in my life. And so you could imagine what most people thought of her. One Saturday morning, I was at the cash register at the front of the store, and the lady from up the street, who was a wonderful Methodist Christian, she came down, and she was just standing there talking to me about the Lord and, and saying a lot of just wonderful things, and I was just listening, and my boss was there, and she walks up, and she hears this conversation, and she steps right into the middle of the conversation, and this is what she said. She said, oh, isn't God good? 
All you have to do is just believe. Isn't he good? Now, my boss didn't love God one bit, but she liked the God she had in her head a whole lot. Now, I know I've given you two extremes. I get that. But all of us fall somewhere on that spectrum. Somewhere in there is exactly where we are. And this morning, I'm going to share some vulnerable parts of my own life, some that you may not know. And I'll explain a little bit later as I get further in, but probably for the first 15 to 20 years of my Christian life, I had a God in my mind who was very performance-driven. Nobody worked any harder. Nobody could be more sincere. Nobody could, could do whatever had to be done. <laughs> you asked my wife, I about drove her and a lot of other people crazy early in ministry. Just the intensity, the, the push, that we've got to do this. And yet, I never, ever, ever felt like I measured up. I never felt like I could have God smile on me. Many people would say wonderful things about me. I just said, I wonder why they lie like that. That could not be true. But somewhere along the path, God brought some key people into my life. At the same time, he brought some key people into my life. He brought some really, really good information into my life that began to open up a whole new world in my mind about God. And so if you ask me this very day, what my view of God is, it would be something like this story. Some years ago, John and Beth, who used to live down the street from us, my youngest son and his wife, and Avia, their daughter, is our oldest grandchild. She was about two years old at the time, and they, she was in our home all the time, there for every Sunday. Lots, we kept her lots, and so she was just an extended part of our immediate family. And so they take this vacation to New York. And they're gone for, I don't know, a week, 10 days. And Ruth and I were just terribly missing. Avia just wanted to see her. And we were, <laughs> we were already ready for bed. It was about 9, 30, 10 o'clock. We had our pajamas on, just relaxing in our recliners. And the phone rings. And it's John. He said, Dad, we're on the north side of town. We're coming in and said, uh, why don't you meet us out here? And we'll get some ice cream. And you guys can see Avia. Well, quite frankly, I wasn't going to drive to the north side of town to see John and Beth or get ice cream, but I wanted to see Avia badly. And I said, we'll be there. I leaped out of that chair. I didn't even take my pajamas off. I jumped into my jeans, put on a shirt. I said, Ruth, rush, get to the door. I'll have the car waiting. We got there. We rushed out to uh, the north side of town on 71, and John and Beth had beat us there. And I saw his van, but I had to park a little distance away. And so when I, he saw my car pull in, he opened the van, he, he was getting Avi out, and he was taking her out of that car seat and putting her down. And I pulled in. I didn't stop. I didn't open Ruth's door. I didn't wait on her. I just leaped out of the car. And I started running across the parking lot. And there Avia was. She was doing this. John was saying, there's Papa, there's Papa. And Avia was oscillating and those little eyes just glowing and looking. And all of a sudden, she saw me. And when she saw me, she threw out her arms, she smiled this massive toothy grin, and she said, Papa! Now, why did I tell you that story? Because 
If you ask me what I thought God was like, that's the best way I know how to describe it. I honestly believe if he reincarnated and walked through those doors this morning, he would walk down that aisle, I would rush to him, he would reach out with a warm embrace and say, son, it is so good to see you. It took a while to get there, but that's where I am in my own view of God. Why is it so critical that we get this picture of God in our heads right? Well, there's four simple reasons. First of all, how we understand God influences powerfully the nature of that relationship with him. If you have this cold and personal God, then I guarantee you, you don't have a warm personal relationship with God this morning. You may be a sincere Christian on your way to heaven, but your relationship with him isn't much. It's only by knowing God correctly that we understand correctly how he wants us to live, what he expects from us. But third, whatever picture of God we have shaped in our thoughts, that picture of God begins to shape us. Like it or not, we become like the God we serve. And if he is this harsh, cruel, distant, cold, lack of benevolent sort of a tyrant, we sort of turn into that ourselves. But fourthly, if we misdefine God, we misdefine everything else. And I've lived long enough, this isn't my first rodeo, I've lived long enough to know, and I've watched a lot of people misdefine him. And in misdefining him, their life lacks joy, there's no, there's no real passion in their life for what they do, for, be, for serving the Lord. There's no true joy. Oh, they've learned how to smile and raise their hand. But there's no real joy in their hearts. So how is our understanding of God developed? And that's where we're coming to on Father's Day. You know, as children, we're... We develop ideas about God as we interact with others. But primarily, and I hate to put this burden on you dads, but that's where it squarely goes. Primarily, we learn our view of God and developed our view of God by our fathers. It's our earthly father that gives us that particular view of God. He actually becomes our first glimpse of what God is really like. Several years ago at GBS, we had a student, some of you remember Brian Yako. And Brian was a student from Papua New Guinea and he got word that his father had passed away. And of course, there was no way Brian had the money to fly home to attend his father's funeral and he was deeply broken and saddened and he wanted to be at his funeral and didn't know what to do. And I said, you know what, let's have a memorial service for Brian's father, right here in the chapel. Some of you may have been there. And we had things planned, they were gonna sing, Brian was gonna talk, and we were gonna say nice things, but all of a sudden, at the very last minute, Brian asked me, he said, uh, President Avery, would you speak? I didn't have a clue who his father was. I didn't know anything about him, and it was so last minute, I was literally on the platform. 
And I sat down in my chair and I thought, dear Lord, what am I going to say? And instantly, the Holy Spirit brought this verse to me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And I got up and I said, we all know Brian. He was a warm-hearted, passionate, loving, kind young man. And I basically talked about Brian and what we saw in Brian obviously must have been in his father. Now, you exegetes are going to say, you've certainly taken that verse out of its context. Yeah, you're right. And uh, some of you may want to scold me a little bit, but let me push back just a little. Because it may not be exegetically or contextually the way you ought to handle it. But I can tell you something, there's a principle that flows out of this verse. I call it the reflection principle. And it's very, very clearly here. From God's perspective, all fathers, even ones who are not Christians, are created to imitate his goodness and reflect that to the little ones around them. If a father is distant, distracted, disconnected, abusive, children will believe that all fathers are that way. But even sadly, they will believe that their heavenly father is that way. God has planned it that you and I would be earthly mirrors of a heavenly reality. That is at the very heart of what fatherhood is. Now, there's two basic fathering styles. There's fathering for performance, and there's fathering for the heart. When you father for performance, and I'll be honest, I'll tell you more about that, but I probably did a lot of that in my early days. This is a, this is a type of fathering that focuses on behavior. You walk right, you look right, you sit right, you speak right, you do it right. It, it focuses completely on behavior. It becomes very legalistic and very mechanical. And when that's your style of fathering, it has a way of exasperating your children and driving them to distraction. The other kind of fathering is you father for the heart. It's not so much the external that you're worried about. You're worried about the heart. You're worried about their character. You're worried about what they are, who they are, and where they're coming from. I grew up in an era, my teenage years were the 70s, and anybody who knows those years, those were the leftover from the hippie generation. And man, I was going to be cool. I had hair to my shoulders. I had, you know, these plaid bell-bottom pants with white belts and red, white, and blue shoes. I looked like a neon sign moving down the street. Weird. And my dad grew up in another era, and we pushed and tugged and fought all the time. The fact of the matter is, the era that my dad grew up in, he would have been perfectly happy if I'd have just cut my hair shorter and dressed a little more carefully and kept my shirt tail tucked in. As long as the image was right, there was nothing ever said about the character of one's heart. But fathering from the heart is like God who looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Now, when you father for just performance, here's what's going to happen. 
And the application here is going to be, here's what's the kind of God this kid's going to develop in their head. When you father for just performance, there's some fallout. Here it is. First of all, you end up with a God who has impossibly demanding expectations. You can never please him. Now, I'm going to say some things very open, very candid, very vulnerable, but I always preface it, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying here. We live right now in our context, we live in a world that everybody's a victim of something. I'm so sick of that, I could, whatever that meant. I guess it's sanctified cussing, I don't know. But I'm not a victim of anything. And my dad wasn't some abusive tyrant. That's utter nonsense. But I I have to be vulnerable here to, to help you see something. And it may not paint everybody in the greatest light, but I want to explain it to you. You can see my dad here, my grandfather, which would be on the far left. He died in 1938 when my dad was just a teenager. And he died from pneumonia. They didn't have, penicillin wasn't in use until 1943. If they'd had a shot of penicillin, he'd have lived, but they didn't. And so he died early. That put my dad in the middle of his teenage years on a little farm in the deep south, in the heart of the Depression. And he sort of grew up an angry young man. I've lost my dad. I've lost everything. He went into the military. He, he was a big man. Shot real well, he made him a military police. But my dad did not know, he was sort of that generation that did not, he just simply didn't know how to show love. As a matter of fact, take a look at this. That's my great-grandfather, Avery. They're actually standing in front of a log cabin. And that's the male figure that my dad grew up with. Now, you didn't know this guy. I didn't know him, but my dad knew him. And his estimation was, he said, my grandfather was weaned on pickle juice and baptized in vinegar. He could speak bluntness in seven languages. Harsh. Just, just take a look. Ooh. Life. He was puddle glum with a capital P. And that's what my dad grew up under. He didn't know how to say, son, I love you. He didn't know how to say any of those things. And one little memory, I could give you many, but one little memory out of my childhood. I was about 10 years old, just a little bigger than your son, David. And we lived on a little farm, and I was riding on the back of the tractor with Dad, and we'd gone through into the pasture. And we were coming out, and I had to put now, you northerners may not know what a cattle gap is. It's not a gate, it's not made out of wood, it's not made of iron, it's made out of three strands of barbed wire with a pole in the middle and the pole on end and has loops on the main post that holds it. So you have to take it over, put it through that bottom loop, pull real hard to make it tight on the top. I see Kim, she's squinting, she doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about. Uh, (laughs) I pity you, Kim. But I was a kid. I could not get it in the top. It was just too much. I could get it at the bottom and not the top. So I took it out of the bottom and I got it in the top. 
Well, it wasn't right. So dad stomps the tractor, gets off, comes back, sort of jerks it out of my hand, fixes it right. And he turns and looks at me. And he said, there's two ways to do anything, the right way and the wrong way. And you always do it the wrong way. Now, don't you go crying and feeling sorry for me. I'm not a victim of anything. But that began to form a picture of God in my head that I could never measure up. I never, ever measured up. Whatever it was, it was wrong. Whatever it was, I got a stern rebuke. Whatever childish, foolish blunder, it usually a pretty swift hand came down to correct it. But I don't blame my dad. He was just doing the best he knew how to do. He, he, he loved us. He was one of the hardest workers I ever met in my life. And that's how he showed his love was through, through work. I don't blame him at all. But I'm telling you, inadvertently or not, we are shaping an image of God in our kids' minds. And I grew up with this image I could never, ever please him. Some of you were there. I know at least the wolves were. The 10-year anniversary, my 10-year anniversary at GBS, and they surprised me at count meeting with this video. And, and to be honest, I don't say this arrogantly, they were pretty 10 marvelous years. But when they showed that video, I sat there on, Monty would have been there, you spoke on that video. I sat there on the front seat and cried, and I told Ruth, what are they doing this for? I've never done anything good. I, what are they talking about? I was blown away. I didn't know how to even receive a compliment. My point is how this affects our view of God. If your dad is unsympathetic, emotionally distant, cold, and interested only in facts and performance, he looks at the report card, he can't see all the A's, he can only see the C then you're gonna have a God that is unsympathetic, emotionally distant, cold, interested only in facts and performance. And it's gonna take the joy right out of living for him. Some dads didn't have time to listen. Too busy to listen. Couldn't make time to listen. They're gonna have a God. Matter of fact, they're gonna have a God they struggle to pray to because they're not sure he's listening. If your dad, unfortunately, was a bully, a bit of a tyrant, then that's how you're going to see God. It's kind of a bully, kind of a tyrant. If you're one of those whose dad walked out the door and left you, you're going to grow up in your mind with a God who can easily abandon. Oh, I can't do the slightest thing wrong or God is going to step out of my life. Somehow in our faith tradition, most of you get this, in our faith tradition, there is just tons of teens and others backsliding when that should never, ever, ever, ever be the case. It should never be the case. Why in the world is it that way? Is it because somehow something that is being done, coming through our dads, coming through our homes, this performance-driven, rule-oriented something that somebody can never quite measure up to, and so... You know, if I'm in trouble here, obviously I'm in trouble with heaven. 
Or maybe it's a God who, I'm sorry, this thing's taking some time. A God who never or rarely ever affirms. I don't care how old you are, how tough you are, everybody in this building wants to hear somebody to say, hey, that's a great job. I've just about made it a, 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 a personal cause to wherever I go around the country to, to try to single out people and brag on them, talk about them, lift them up, say some kind things about them, try to, try to help them get up on their feet and get their head up. But I worked with a, a pastor about 40 years ago. Grew up in a situation, blue-collar dad, rough. He grew up in an environment, rough. And they never knew how to affirm, never knew how to say anything. Actually, their way of, of sort of being nice was to make you the butt of their joke. You grow up under that. You grow up being the butt of your dad's joke. You, are, you grow up being the goofus in the family. You grow up never hearing, hey, that's wonderful, son. Boy, you look good, that's sharp. I can't tell you how much I love you. You, you grow up never hearing that. And then you go out into life. Let's say you're going to marry someone that may speak bluntness in seven languages. Guess what? It can create some hazardous situations, serious situations down the pike. I've watched that play out. I don't know how many pastors I have watched stumble and fall and that I was personally engaged with. And in so many of those cases, there was this what I call affirmation deficit. They needed someone to say something kind and gracious about them. Sometimes when our kids are out looking for stuff and filling their lives with something, they're just looking for something and somebody to affirm them. And that ought to be coming from our dads. Dads, we need to be pouring that into our kids. We need to be telling, oh, none of our kids are perfect. Yours, mine wasn't perfect and yours not perfect. And I sure wasn't a perfect kid. But we need to be affirming, pouring things in to people, to our children, so that our kids don't have to live with this affirmation. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I've, I've done this for 45 years. And one of the two things I see more than anything else is people have a skewed view of God. And secondly, they lack assurance of all the people in the whole wide world that ought to be overflowing with assurance. It ought to be this tradition of people overflowing with assurance in their hearts. And much of that, I think, can be attributed to the fact this lack of affirmation, a lot of it had to do with the style of preaching, the approach to preaching, the approach to a lot of things. You can deal with sin. You can deal with misbehavior. You can deal with wrong behavior without demeaning and beating up and beating down somebody. It can happen. Now, what about fathering the heart? A different approach. Let me give you five things and I'm done. To father from the heart is to give unconditional love, very openly communicated both verbally and visibly. Many of you would know Reverend Bob Thompson 
He's up in his 90s today. He was 79 years old. I was at his church in Columbus and preaching, and then we went to his house, and he and I were sitting on the patio while his wife was preparing a meal. We were just sitting there enjoying the beautiful day, and he turned and looked at me and burst into tears and said, Mike Avery, my dad never told me he loved me. And he burst, a 79-year-old man, extremely successful in the, in the building business, a successful pastor. He just turned and said, my dad never told me he loved me and burst into tears. In our D group, in our, one of our early D groups, I know this sounds risky. You judge me if you want to. Quite frankly, I don't care much anymore. But I told Ruth, I said, these kids are going to know they're loved in this group. Some of you that were in that group may be here this morning, but you never, ever left that group. Every day group. When we were done, we prayed in a circle, and Ruth and I went to every person in the whole group, and we gave them a great big hug, and we told them we loved them. And I'll never forget a kid, one of the male males in that group. I gave him a warm embrace. I thought I was squeezing a marble statue. He didn't know what in the world to do with these big arms coming around him. He just, he was like this. And I looked him and I took him by the shoulders and I looked him dead in the eye and said, I love you. It took him several weeks but he finally dropped by my office, sat in a chair, tears running down his cheeks. He said, Brother Avery, you're the first man who's ever told me he loved me. Unconditional love that's communicated verbally and visibly. The personhood of the individual is ensured. It's very relational. We know the person we're dealing with. I had two boys that were as different as daylight and dark. If, if, and if you've got seven kids, they're all different as daylight and dark, I guess. But mine were so very different. And I knew them. Boy, did I ever know them. They were just different. I knew their habits. I knew how to deal with one. I knew how to deal with the other. We're all individuals. And God ensures, God is not interested in clones at all. And I, I, it troubles me sometimes in our faith tradition, we don't have much more variety. Because God is a God of infinite variety. And somehow we think we all got to just walk alike, talk alike, look alike, act alike. For crying out loud, he's not making robots and clones. He's creating individuals with unique personalities. And it's important that we affirm that in our kids, unless they're absolutely off the charts and nuts, but otherwise. We need to communicate values, rules, boundaries very, very clearly. Very clearly. I didn't get permission to say this and it's easier to get forgiveness than it is permission. But when I was growing up as a teen, it was long hair days, man. Everybody had long hair. Well, not everybody. But everybody wanted to have long hair. All the boys did. 
And so, man, I just tugged and pushed. I was a pretty strong-willed kid, man. I'd hate to have been me. I'd hate to have a kid like me. But I, I was pushing, and I, my hair grew long. It down over, I remember it got over my ears and all, then kept going on down. And, well, oh, I thought it was so cool. But my dad fought against that from day one. I mean, it was a constant issue between. It was, a const, it was an issue between us. Big issue. But I watched something just in recent, recent days. Today, you know, people have long hair, short hair. I don't know. There doesn't, it doesn't seem to be any trend to me. But I watched someone in this congregation whose son had long hair. And I watched that just be cool. Not a problem. As parents and as fathers, we need to reflect this attribute of God. If it's not prohibited in the book, you don't need to get too bent, up, too bent out of shape about it. You need to be a little cool here. Now, if it's in the book, you need to stand firm and loving, but firm. But if it ain't in the book, just be cool. I knew I'd get a lot of amens on that. Discipline. I struggle with this one as a parent. My dad, <laughs> my dad uh, shot first and aimed later. That's the way it was, man. He, I remember one time as a kid, he put, we, we took the fence down and we had a bunch of cows. And he said, now you got to stand out here and watch this fence line. You play in this side of the yard. You make sure those cows don't get out until I can get this fence back up. So I was posted there like a sentinel. And I stood there and I stood there. I couldn't, there wasn't a cow in sight. And I thought, what happened to these cows? So I go to the back side of the pasture and lo and behold, these cows are way down in the woods and I'm worried about them. So I go up and drive them all up. Right up next to the fence where there isn't one. And my dad happens to step out and, 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 and sees what I've done. He didn't say, oh, son, what in the world are you doing? Your pitiful little pathetic brain and heart. Don't feel sorry for these cows. Keep them out. No. He grabbed a switch and thoroughly thrashed me. Now, my point is this. Discipline should not be punitive. Discipline should be redemptive. Whether you spank them, make them sit in the corner, time out, whatever. Discipline should be redemptive. Redemption should always be in the back of our discipline. I pastored a family years ago. They didn't think they could. They had a daughter, but, and they didn't think they'd have any more children, so they adopted a boy. Then after they adopted this boy, several years later, another child comes along. And this little kid was a little awkward kid and full of mischief, but unbelievably brilliant. He's the only one in a youth camp can answer all Albert Barr's questions. Brilliant kid. But they didn't have a clue what to do with him. And they were constantly berating him. They were constantly, they were farmers. And when, when they spanked, they didn't, it was either a rope or a belt, man. It was bad stuff. And this kid was coming into his teenage years. And 
He, he was learning about the body was beginning to function like a little man. And he was exploring and, and, and doing some stuff. And his dad walks in and catches him. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't sit down and say, son, let's talk about what it's like to grow up and be a man and things that are changing. He just grabs a belt and blisters him from head to toe as if he's going to beat this desire out of him. I tried my best to talk to them, but they couldn't listen. That kid is in a prison in Texas today. One of the brightest minds I ever knew as a teenager. He's in Texas in a prison. We need discipline for God knows we need discipline and boundaries. But it needs to be redemptive and done in love. And finally, fathers should create a safe place. That's the best way I know how to say it. You can read the rest. It's there. Home ought to be a safe place. And the key person who makes home a safe place is dad. It's dad that makes it a safe place. I heard Tim yesterday in our prayer time. He talked about he'd ask his girls a question about men and men praying. And their response to him was, dad, that makes us feel secure. Tim, that took me back 20 years. I was home from the school and the burdens were heavy and we were battling with something. And I came home and I had, on the third floor I had a prayer room. And I was up there and I'd walk and pray because if I knelt, I was so tired, I'd go to sleep. So I just walked and prayed. And it was right over Josh's bedroom. And of course, those old hundred-year-old homes, they squeaked and, and the floor was squeaking and Josh was trying to study and it was squeaking and I was walking and praying. I didn't know he was at home. I thought he was at UC. A little bit later, I finished. I came down. I was standing in the den talking to Ruth. And I felt two hands grab me from the back on my shoulders. And I turned around, there was Josh. And he said, he said, Dad, I, he said, what are you doing home? He said, I, I heard you upstairs. I said, oh, son, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were studying. I didn't mean to, who in the world can pray when it's squeak, squeak? I mean, study when it's, I said, I am so sorry. And here's what he said. He said, oh, Dad, don't apologize. He said, when I hear that squeaking footstep upstairs, it makes me feel safe safe. You may not can give your kids a million dollar inheritance. You may not can give them an articulate, bright, successful business guy, a leader of something or whatever. But I tell you what you can give them. Everybody here can do it. You can give them a dad that knows how to pray. A dad that knows how to love God with all of his heart. And they're not looking for perfection. You're going to be a bumbling idiot like all the rest of us bumbling idiots. And you're going to do some really, really stupid stuff. Trust me, I have. You can't believe some of the dumb stuff I've done. But my boys, if they were both sitting here this morning, they'd tell you, they'd tell you this. Josh is the talker. He'd tell you. He'd say, Dad, you always had a really good reverse gear. That was the redemption of it. You had a really good reverse gear. Every dumbbell here can have a reverse gear. Every person here can pray. And every man here can love God with all of your heart. And I'm not here to discourage you this morning at all. Being a dad, it's, you know, quite frankly, I did the very best I could. And I don't sit around grieving about it. Just waste of time. 
<laughs> I told him one time at school I'd been dealing with some ornery parent about something. I came home for lunch and, uh, and both of them were there and I said, you know what? You guys need to sit down here and kiss my feet. They looked at me, what are you talking about? I said, you need to get down here and kiss my feet. You could have been stuck with one of them over there, but you got me. So I'm not sitting around <laughs> moaning and groaning about my failures. I just don't. I don't live in the past. I'm trying to be a better one every day that I live. You can do that. You can pray. You can tell them you love them every chance you get. And I could say a lot more, but it's time to quit. Let's pray. Father, I don't know of a more awesome privilege in the world than to be a father. To guide those little feet. To wrap those little bodies up with our arms and our love and our provision and our providing. I don't know of anything in the world better. But I don't know of anything in the world more, more difficult and, and it's sometimes dangerous. Because when they see us, they have seen the Father. Lord, help every one of us to be a good image of God in their lives. If there are dads sitting here this morning grieved about the way they've blown it, remember them that there's always the second chance to be a great father. Eli blew it in the beginning, but he got it right with Samuel. So you can have a second chance at this. You've got grandkids and other kids, and Lord, those that are doing it right, multiply them and bless them and strengthen them and help this church to be a church of men and fathers that love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to know more about Hope Along the Journey, or if you would like to make a donation to show your support and appreciation for this ministry, then visit our website at hopealongthejourney.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for more hope along the journey.